Hello friends, and welcome to another episode of Stuck on Arrakis. Today we're going to be talking about uh, book seven. <laughs> I almost said book two. Book seven, The Crown of Swords by Robert Jordan, uh, book seven in the Wheel of Time series. And I'm doing something a little bit different today because, you know, usually what I do is I read the entire book and write the entire show, record the entire show, and then post as many episodes whenever as the discussion takes, and then I move on to the next book. However, somebody, I can't remember if it was on Reddit or like an email conversation with I what, that I had with a listener, and I tried to find it and I couldn't, but they said something like, are you going to read up to a certain point and then record a podcast episode? And I was like, no, I'm not going to do that. And then I was like, wait a second, that sounds fun. So that's what I'm trying today. Um, at this point, I've only read up to the halfway point, which is actually kind of a lie. I cheated and read like 100 more pages, but I'm definitely not done with the book yet. So what I want to do is just take this episode, this halfway episode, to talk about like the big moments so far, the prophecies, the predictions, things that I'm curious about or have questions about or whatever. Um, this is just a trial. I think that I really like it so far, though, so I'll probably adopt, adopt, adapt, whatever, make that part of the show. <laughs> so anyway, all that to say, that's what we're doing today. This episode is just going to be for the first 440 pages of the book, which is about halfway, I think. I don't, that's just where I decided to stop. I don't know. Anyway, that's what we're doing. Um, couple of disclaimers, this book does contain spoilers for the first six and a half books. Uh, it does not contain spoilers after that because I'm only six and a half plus 100 pages into the series. Um, so I haven't read book eight and beyond, so I can't talk about those. So if you've only read books seven or, you know, six and a half books, this is spoiler free for you. If you've read the entire series, <laughs> this podcast is also spoiler-free for you. And then, of course, um, I'm not great at pronunciation. I'm getting way better, but I might mispronounce something. If that happens, you can email me and tell me how to pronounce it if that makes you feel better about it. Same disclaimers I have in every episode. If you're if you're here on episode 12, then I, you know, you already know how I am with pronunciation. In fact, you've probably been on the journey the whole time where at first I couldn't pronounce shit, and now I can pronounce everything pretty well. So, hooray, I get a gold sticker. It's Saturday, let's do this. So first, let me just summarize um, where I am in this book, because I think that's important to let you guys know where the discussion is going to stop. And also, you know, I always have a summary. So here we go. Um, I'm not going to talk about the prologue in this episode, even though I really wanted to, because there's so much to unpack. But I want to give that all of the time that it needs, and it wouldn't fit in this episode with all of the other shit I also want to talk about. So that's the next episode. However, after that, the book starts in this manner. <laughs> um, so we start the book with, uh, shortly after Demise Wells, the Battle of Demise Wells, and everyone is just like kind of milling about and trying to figure out what they're going to do next and what to do with the Aes Sedai prisoners, which becomes a whole argument, but that's for another discussion. Brand has an Ashaman named uh, Dashima open a gateway to Kyrian so he can see what everybody else has been up to while he's been gone and what he has to do to kind of fix shit. So Dashima opens the gateway 
and everyone is able to walk through it, which is really impressive if you remember how hard it was for Rand to open a gateway that, like, one person at a time could walk through. But Dashima's able to open this huge gateway. Uh, and everybody goes through, Aiel, soldiers, Aes Sedai, wagons, the whole gang. And then when they get to Kyrian, they find that, and this is no surprise to anyone, Colavir has taken the throne and is quickly dethroned by Rand. And then, you know, he strips her of all of her titles. He tells her that she's banished to a farm. And then later we find that she's killed herself in her room. And I'm doing air quotes, killed herself, because it's very possible that somebody else killed her. Egwene and her rebel Aes Sedai and their army are marching towards the White Tower with their army led by Gareth Bryn. I recorded that like four times and I keep mispronouncing his name and I still don't know if I'm pronouncing it right. So anyway, moving on. <laughs> um, we learn that Lan has been there most of the time and he's been with Morel. I think that's how you say her name. Morel, who has been helping him heal. Big air quotes. I'm also wagging my eyebrows, but you can't tell. But, you know, they've been doing a lot of healing. <laughs> um, and eventually Egwin finds out about the situation, is pissed. Morel transfers Lan's uh, wardership, I guess, to Nynaeve, and he rides off into the sunset. They have not reunited yet. I'm real excited to see that happen. And, and then in Ebudar, uh, Nynaeve, Lan, and Avienda are still looking for the Tarangriol that can change the weather. And then they meet with some sea folk who tell them that that Tarangriol is called the Bowl of Winds. So now we know that they're looking for the Bowl of Winds. Also in Ebudar, Matt is passing his time with, you know, the way that Matt usually passes time. Gambling, sleeping around, chilling in his inn, you know, I don't know trying to keep the girls out of trouble, but they've been completely ignoring him the whole time. And then he's, like, at a horse track or something, and he sees a dark friend that he recognizes because that dark friend tried to kill him, and he follows her, and we later learn that these particular dark friends are working directly with Samael. So now we've got that to deal with. And then um, Matt goes to the palace or whatever to leave a message for the supergirls and he had just so happens to meet queen tylan who basically tries to eat him for breakfast more eyebrow wagging is happening here <laughs> and all the while he can sense that something bad is like some shit's about to go down soon because he's got the dice tumbling in his head which is a really great plot device because now i'm full of anticipation for what's going to happen to matt and I don't have to wait very long because on his way back to his room at the Wandering Woman, he um, is attacked. And then when he gets to his room, someone has left a note for him at the end warning him that the Supergirls need to chill because they're in trouble. And of course they are because that's basically a description of the Supergirls. One quick thing I noticed before we get into like the interesting bits. There are a lot more italics in this book than I feel like there have been in the rest of the series. And I think that mostly it's like flashbacks or somebody trying to remember something. But that's one of the things I noticed that there are a lot of like pretty long multi-page italicized passages. And I'm still trying to get a feel for why exactly he's choosing to use italics all of a sudden. 
but like I said, I think it's just memories and flashbacks and stuff, but it did not escape my notice. Um, it's, there are a lot of them in this book. One of the things that I really want to do in these halfway episodes is go ahead and talk about the prophecies because I feel like sometimes I'll read a prophecy, you know, at the beginning of the book and I won't understand what it means. And at the end, I do. So I thought it would be fun for me to read um, a couple of them that I've run into so far, react to them, maybe make some predictions, and then see if by the end I know the answer or whatever to the questions that I had about the prophecy. So I'm going to read the prophecy from the start of the book because it's incredible. Here we go. There can be no health in us, nor any good thing grow, for the land is one with the dragon reborn, and he one with the land. Soul of fire, heart of stone, and pride he conquers, forcing the proud to yield. He calls upon the mountains to kneel, and the seas to give way, and the very skies to bow. Pray that the heart of stone remembers tears, and the soul of fire, love. Oh, you guys, this is a good one. This is like one of my favorite prophecies so far. And these are the kinds of things that keep me showing up to this series every time I finish a book. And they're really the reason why I have this podcast, because stuff like this is so rich and filled with, I don't know, magic and, uh, God, lore and stuff like that. And I just love the prophecies. So let's let's break this one down. The first sentence is so haunting. The whole bit about the dragon reborn literally destroying everything that we've seen in other prophecies before. Here it is. It's already begun. We're like right in the swing of it now. The world is changing. It's hurtling like faster and faster towards this last battle, the moment that the battle is over. And at this point, I don't know what kind of rand we're going to have when we get there. Because, and I've, I know I've said this a million times, we're on book seven now. Rand is becoming quite mad. And I'm getting more and more worried about him. Second sentence. Forcing the proud to yield. What a fucking way to start this book. After the absolutely enormous ending to the last book, where he literally forces the proud Aes Sedai to yield. And the proud are certainly yielding to Rand at this point in the series. The third sentence is amazing. What does it mean? He calls upon the mountains to kneel and the seas to give way and the very skies to bow. This is poetic, but I feel like there might be some truth in it. You know what I mean? Like, I don't know, maybe the mountains are going to start crumbling or the sea level is going to rise, you know, because the world is and the land are already changing so much that I would not be surprised if everything actually starts crumbling down around them as the last battle approaches. The last sentence, I think, is the best part of this prophecy. Pray that the heart of stone remembers tears and the soul of fire love. This is such an amazing line. I'm going to read it again. <laughs> Pray that the heart of stone remembers tears and the soul of fire love. This gives me so much perspective because whenever we first met Rand, he was heading from his little farm and his little village with his dad, going to the to town for their yearly harvest festival, right? Normal, quiet, innocent life. 
And now we're here at a point where his heart of stone needs to remember tears. And his soul of fire needs to remember love. Wow. Wow, wow, wow. Uh, What an amazing prophecy. I think that's my favorite so far. I've probably said that about all of them, but this is really my favorite so far because it's just so good. The next one that we get is actually from the prologue, and I know I said I wasn't going to talk about the prologue, but this is really it. Actually, that might not be true. I think I mentioned another point from the prologue, but the prophecy in the that we get in the prologue is from Elida, who is apparently a foreteller. She has the gift of foretelling, which I don't remember if I knew that or not, but she gives us a foretelling in the prophecy that, or the prophecy, god damn it. the prologue that I want to read for you guys. So it says, and you know, she's just talking and then all of a sudden this starts coming out of her. She says, The white tower will be whole again, except for the remnants cast out in scorn, whole and stronger than ever. Randall Thor will face the Amarlin seat and know her anger. The black tower will be rent in blood and fire and sisters will walk its grounds. This I foretell. You know, after reading that last part again, I'm wondering if every time there's a foretelling, the foreteller ends the foretelling by saying, this I foretell, so that it's not just like, oh, I'm saying this stuff. But I don't know if I've ever, if we've seen anybody else foretell anything or if they said that. That was just a thought that I had in my head. But this prophecy does not bode well for our boy Rand (laughs) or... Uh, Egwene and her army, I guess, or whatever, her remnants that have been cast out. But it's possible that, and I'm wondering if this prophecy sounds like one thing, but means something else entirely. Like, maybe the White Tower being a whole means being whole again, like actually whole again, with male and female Aes Sedai joining forces and and then maybe Rand will face the Amarlin seat, but it's not Elida. It's like Egwene or or somebody else. And then maybe the Black Tower will also be destroyed as a like a symbol that the Aes Sedai aren't separate into the White and Black Tower anymore. That they're just the Tower again. Um, honestly, it probably means exactly what it sounds like. <laughs> um, all of those bad things. Are probably going to happen, but I think that it's interesting to kind of look at how it could be misinterpreted because a lot of the things that the Aes Sedai say and do are truths, but they're like mis- they're easy to misinterpret truths. So it wouldn't surprise me if this prophecy about the Aes Sedai from an Aes Sedai is also kind of not what it sounds like. You know what I mean? So, I think that we might, well, I don't know. I don't know when or if we'll see any of this happen. If it's going to be at the end of this book, which would be cool, or, you know, soon, or something like that. But I'm hoping this prophecy will not be literal. I'm hoping that something else will happen and it won't be as bad, or something like that. There's another prophecy kind of at the end of the section that I've read, the end of the first half. Um, So let me read that one for you. As the plow breaks the earth, shall he break the lives of men, and all that was shall be consumed in the fire of his eyes. 
The trumpets of war shall sound at his footsteps, the ravens feed at his voice, and he shall wear a crown of swords. Cool. I like where this is going. This actually kind of reminds me of the prophecy that we get at the beginning of the Dragon Reborn. Let me grab that one and also read it for you so we can compare. Okay, here's the one at the beginning of the Dragon Reborn. And his paths shall be many, and who shall know his name? For he shall be born among us many times in many guises, as he has been and ever will be, time without end. His coming shall be like the sharp edge of the plow, turning our lives in furrows from out of the places where we lie in our silence. The breaker of bonds, the forger of chains, the maker of futures, the unshaper of destiny. I mean, really, all of the prophecies are similar or the same, but I think that the um, plow breaking the earth element, I think it's interesting that it's now popping up again in a different prophecy. And I'm wondering why Jordan has chosen to fall back, I guess, on the same language when he usually doesn't. So that was um, important for me to note for the future, I guess. And, you know, to discuss on the podcast with you, because that's the whole fucking point of this, isn't it? Anyway, back to the prophecy that's actually in this book. So we get the name of the book in this prophecy. It mentions um, the dragon reborn wearing the crown of swords. And, I mean, it sounds like it's pretty safe bet that at the end of it, he's going to have the crown of swords. And I'm not really sure if the crown of swords is like an actual physical crown or if it's like a metaphor or it's alluding to something else. Like, you know, if he fulfills a certain part of the prophecy, then he is said to be wearing the crown of swords, even if he isn't like actually physically wearing a crown of swords. It probably is literal, but I, I leave everything open to the possibilities while I'm reading this book. Speaking of prophecies... Um, I feel like sometimes I forget that Egwene's dreams can be another form of foretelling. And then she has a dream and I'm like, oh yeah, maybe I should be paying more attention to her other dreams. But if I remember correctly, her, the, I think the foretelling part of her dream walking doesn't happen very often. But I do think that she has some foretelling dreams in the first half of The Crown of Swords. So I want to talk about those, um, and there's quite a few, so this will be a cool and fun conversation. So for context, she's just met with Amice and the other wise ones in Teleranriode, and then after the meeting is over, she like kind of steps back into her body and starts like dreaming her own dreams again. And she has a few dreams that I think are really interesting and might be foretellings. So, in the first dream that she has, she's, like, swooning over Gaiwen, and then she notices that he's walking toward her across a floor of broken glass. So, something weird is happening. You know, the first part of the dream, she's like, oh, Gaiwen, wow, he's so hot, wow. And then all of a sudden, it takes a turn when she realizes that he's walking across the broken glass, and it it becomes a lot scarier and, I don't know, more panicked or something like that. But I can't really figure out, I, I don't know if this dream is concrete enough for me to make any sort of guesses as to why 
he's walking across a floor of broken glass. Will there actually be a floor of broken glass manifest physically somewhere in the world at some point? Or is it just like a metaphor for something being in between them and preventing them from being together without pain for one of them? I think it's probably a metaphor, but who knows? They could be in a building where the power has just broken all the windows or something like that. So that's something to keep an eye on. Then she moves to a different dream where, and this one is really interesting, Guywin is riding his horse along and he comes to a fork in the road. And I just want to read like some of this dream from the book. So he's he's running, you know, he's riding his horse or whatever. And he, he comes to the fork and she says, Down one fork was his violent death, down the other a long life and a death in bed. On one path he would marry her, on the other not. She knew what lay ahead, but not which way led to which. Ooh, interesting. Okay, so given the nature of their lives and the fact that the world is like hurling them full speed towards their very likely demise in the last battle, I'm going to go ahead and guess <laughs> that the fork that keeps him close to Egwene and involved in her life in the last battle is the one that's going to end badly for him. I don't foresee them being together and it, him not being like caught up in the shit that Egwene is going through because she's closely tied to Rand and is therefore always going to be a target or the Forsaken or the Dark Friends or whatever. I think if he was going to live a long life and die in bed, he would probably need to completely separate herself from her and... I don't know, avoid being involved in the last battle or the dragon reborn or anything like that. At the end of the dream, or like, you know, he sits at the fork for a while and then he seems to be able to see her and he picks a path and he smiles and goes down that path. So I think that he's probably choosing whatever path has him being with Egwene. And so he's probably going to be around for a while. And I have this prediction that he's going to turn into a complete asshole soon and do something like, because he has so much animosity towards Rand and I just feel like he's going to do something really rash and stupid because like we know that Gaiwen is a real stickler for the rules and he's really uptight and he's got a huge stick up his ass. So I can imagine him think misinterpreting a situation and thinking that he's in the right when he's really not and then doing something drastic. You know what I mean? Like, I'd be willing to bet a lot of money that that exact thing is going to happen. And then she has, like, some other silly little dreams that we don't get a lot of details about. But then, in the third big dream, she's standing in front of a huge wall of, God help me, I have such a hard time with this word, in front of a huge wall of Quaindiar, <laughs> and is trying to, like, break it or tear it down. And Quaindiar are the the seals that hold the Dark One's prison. They have the, like, yin and yang Aes Sedai symbol on them. And she wonders if it's because the it's the Aes Sedai symbol on these Quaindiar, she's wondering if it's like the dream is like she's trying to break down the Aes Sedai or the tower. This paired with Elida's foretelling is an interesting combination but I think this one might be more on the nose. 
right? Egwene is literally marching to the tower to tear Elida down. But what if it means more than that? Um, what if further into the series, Egwene does something that actually threatens the Aes Sedai way of life? Or what if her taking back the tower sets off like this chain of events that is de eventually detrimental to the Aes Sedai? And I think that that is probably accurate in some way, shape, or form because the world is ending. Rand is destroying life for everyone as they know it. Why would the Aes Sedai survive this? You know what I mean? Why would they be unscathed? They are such a huge part of the last battle that I can't foresee the tower or, or the organization or even the Aes Sedai surviving the last battle. I could be wrong, but that's kind of my prediction as of now. Okay, next dream is about Matt. I'm going to read this one from the book because it's short and very important, I think. So it says, Matt sat on a night-shrouded hilltop, watching a grand illuminator's display of fireworks, and suddenly his hand shot up and seized one of those bursting lights in the sky. Arrows of fire flashed from his clenched fist, and a sense of dread filled her. Men would die because of this. The world would change, but the world was changing. It always changed. Does Matt fucking discover gunpowder or explosives or something does the world start using them because of something he does because apparently the world is going to completely change and men are going to die because matt reached up and grabbed um like an illuminator's fireworks i think he i think he discovers gunpowder i think that we're going to start having explosions and maybe not guns, similar weapons of death and destruction because of something that Matt does. I don't know when that's going to happen. I don't know if it's going to happen, but that's what I'm thinking this dream is saying, which is interesting. And it makes sense because Robert Jordan was such a military history guy. Why wouldn't we get gunpowder and explosives at some point? You know what I mean? And the next dream, Egwene is like on the chopping block, right? She's about to get her head chopped off. And she, can t she knows that someone is, like, running towards her to try to stop it. And I won't try to guess who that could be right now because, really, any of her friends or any of the people she knows could be the one running to save her, right? It could be Nynaeve. It could be Elaine. It could be Brigitte. It could be Matt or Perrin. It could be Rand. Um, it could be anyone. Uh, so I think the stream is important, but I can't figure it out yet. I, like, I don't have enough information quite yet but I will remember it when something similar happens probably <laughs> the next one is really interesting um I think I want to read this one from the book too so she's dreaming uh, of Loghain laughing stepping across something on the ground and mounted a black stone when she looked down she thought it was Rand's body he had stepped over laid out in a funeral byre with his hands crossed at his breast but when she touched his face, it broke apart like a paper puppet. A lot of weird shit going on here, right? So Loghain steps over something on the ground that she thinks is Rand's body. Does Rand, uh, or does Loghain do something to Rand to hurt him or kill him? Who knows? Um, and then he mounts a black stone. I have no idea what that means. And uh, when Egwene tries to touch Rand's face, it breaks apart. 
what the fuck? What the fuck does this mean? This is so crazy. I really hope that Loghain doesn't kill or otherwise injure Rand, but who knows? But also, this could be, this could mean something entirely different than what it looks like. We'll just have to see. And then I think this part is actually maybe part of the same dream. So this part says, A golden hawk stretched out its wing and touched her, and she and the hawk were tied together somehow. All she knew was that the hawk was female. A man lay dying in a narrow, be narrow bed, and it was important he not die, yet outside a funeral pyre was being built, and voices raised songs of joy and sadness. A dark young man held an object in his hand that shone so brightly she could not see what it was. So, for this part, if I remember correctly, Perrin also has ties to a hawk in one of men's visions from, like, way earlier in the series. So, we're on book seven, or, you know, seven and a half, well, six and a half. <laughs> I can't do math, oh my god. Um, we're on book six and a half, and I don't think we've met the hawk yet. And now, it's also appearing in Egwin's dream, which is interesting. Um, and then someone is dying in a bed, and there's a funeral pyre being built. And it's important that the man dying in the bed doesn't die. Is that supposed to be Rand? Is Rand dying? Because if anybody, if it's important for anybody not to die, that's Rand. <laughs> um, and then there's, people are singing songs of joy and sadness outside, which I can't, I mean, I can make a guess, but. And then who is this young man? And what is this object? If Egwene is saying, is calling somebody a young man, does that mean that she is older now? How much younger is this man than, than Egwene is? Is this like several years in the future? I have so many questions. I have a couple guesses that are all probably wrong, and that's really what you guys are here for, so let's just take a stab at it. If Egwene is calling some uh, somebody younger than her, then it's possible that this is at the end of the series. And Rand is dying from the last battle, and he's about to die, and everybody knows that. But why would it be important for him not to die at that point? But people are singing songs of sadness and joy, so are they sad because Rand died, but happy because he, like, saved the world? Is the young man, well, I was gonna say, is the young man, like, Aram or something, but I don't think it is. Because I don't think he's that much younger than Egwene. Yeah, I don't know. This is interesting. Um, this might be a peak at the last battle. I'm probably very wrong, and those of you who have already read the series are probably like, what the fuck is she talking about? But from what I know, and where we are in the series and stuff, that's kind of the most sensical, I guess, guess for me. So that's what I'm going with. We'll see if I'm right. We'll see who the hawk is, who is the young man, who is dying? I have so many questions that hopefully will get answered soon or... And then Egwene keeps dreaming and dreaming and dreaming. And she thinks, you know, there's so many of these dreams, but she has to do what much must be done. Which is what? What must be done? You have to comb through all your dreams and like look for some hint or some information. That makes sense. But why does she think that this must be done? I thought that was interesting. You know what else I was thinking the other day? We know that Grindel has servants from like other parts of the world. But as far as I can tell, the Rand and the Legend of the Dragon Reborn and stuff like that seem more of like a thing on this continent, on 
quote unquote ran land. And I don't, I can't tell if like it's a thing anywhere else besides like wherever the Sean Chan come from. So I'm wondering if some of the people or, you know, the people on some of the other continents are just like, why is the weather so bad lately? Why is it so fucking hot all of a sudden? What are these like weird fucking things that keep happening? You know what I mean? Like they do they just have no idea what's going on or do they have like their own versions of the prophecies and the end of the world? Like are we on the other side or something like that and we're just like, "Oh, this is totally nor- this is climate change right now, but it's actually like the dark one breaking out of his prison or some shit like that." That is Probably not correct in any way, shape, or form, but it's fun to theorize wildly. You know what I mean? That's what we do here, right? As fans of fantasy and speculative fiction, we find out some kind of cool things about Tar Valen's history and like the history of the White Tower and the first half of Crown of Swords. Um, one of the things that I'm most excited about for like the coming books is whatever the fuck is going to happen. I'm full of F-bombs today, aren't I? Whatever, we're going with it. Um, Whatever is going to happen when Egwene and Gareth and their army get to Tarvalon, I don't think that that's going to happen anytime soon. Like, it's probably going to be two, maybe three books from now. I could be wrong. It could be at the end of this book. But they, I think they're in, like, Amadicia at the point where I'm at now. And they have to get to Tarvalon, and that's, like, forever away. But um, they talk about their the plan, their plan of attack, and how Gareth plans on like taking the tower back in this book. And I cannot wait to see that whole thing go down because the plan is they, you know, as they march, they're getting more and more soldiers. So Gareth says he's hoping to have like two or three times as many soldiers as they do now when they get there. And then when he gets there, he wants to siege the tower, lay siege to Tarvalon by sinking ships and blocking the harbors. And Morel like, steps in and she said, she reminds him that um, Archer Hawkwing laid siege to Tarvalon and he failed and it took 20 years. 20 years. We don't have 20 years for the siege of Tar Valen. So I'm wondering if Gareth is actually going to be successful where Archer Hawkwing wasn't. And he, I mean, from, as far as I can tell, he's like one of the best, I don't know, what was he? Army leader? <laughs> Help me out. Uh, he was one of the best leaders of an army that history can remember or whatever, right? He's like the one that everybody talks about. So if he can't do it, can Gareth do it? We'll see. I hope that the the confrontation happens soon, but like I said, I don't think that's going to be anytime soon. I think it's probably going to be at the end of se- the series when, like, all the shit starts to go down, like maybe in book 11 or 12 or something like that. Um, but at the same time, I really hope it doesn't, I mean, I hope that Egwene isn't just marching for four or five books. I don't know. I'm punching holes in my own theory right now, so I'm going to move on. <laughs> um, another interesting thing that um, kind of happens in the same conversation, actually, if I'm remembering correctly, is while they're talking about the plan, Gareth says offhandedly, whenever they're talking about Arthur Hawkwing's 
whatever. Um, he says that no one has ever successfully breached Tar Valen's walls. But then in Egwene's head, she's like, oh, that's not true. Let me read it to you. Okay, so uh, Morel says no army. Oh, I'm sorry. Garrett says no army has ever breached uh, Tarvalon's walls. And then it says that was not strictly true. Egwene knew. In the Trolloc Wars, an army of Dreadlord-led Trollocs had actually plundered and burned a part of the White Tower itself. At the end of the War of the Second Dragon, an army trying to rescue, I don't know how to say this, Gwer Amalasan, <laughs> before he was gentled, had reached the Tower too. Morel could not know. Access to those secret histories hidden deep in the Tower Library was set out in a law that was itself a secret, and revealing the existence of either records or law was treason. Swan said, If you read between the lines, you found hints of things that had not been recorded even there. I said I were very good at hiding truth when they thought it necessary, even from themselves. So it sounds like most Aes Sedai don't know this, right? Because Morel is a fully-fledged and experienced sister, and Egwene says that she couldn't know that. But Egwene has been a fully-fledged sister for, like, a couple weeks. So at what point can you learn these secrets? I think it must be, like, an Amerlin seat thing. Um, otherwise, why would Egwene know but Morel not know? Also, when, when has Swan been, like, tutoring Egwene on, like, all of these secrets? Why haven't we been there for that? Because... I want to learn more of the secrets that Swan knows. So I thought that was interesting. But now I want to move on to what is probably the best part, the best scene in the first half of this book. And that is the confrontation with Colavir when Ran returns to Kyrian after his capture. Um, and he finds her there having taken the throne to nobody's surprise, right? We all know how much she's been gunning for... I mean, she's been gunning for the throne since we first met her. And she uh, met with the Aes Sedai and everything when they were talking about there being a vacuum of leadership when Ran leaves Kyrian. But this is such a good and really important scene. So I want to take a, a while here to really break it down. After Rand's capture, he decides that he needs to go back to Kyrian to see what his enemies have been up to while he was away and what he needs to do about it. So Rand and this huge army of people, Aeol, uh, soldiers, uh, Aes Sedai, wise ones, stuff like that, they return to Kyrian and they find Colavir on the throne. Nobody's surprised. Um, I think he fully expected to go back and find her in exactly that spot. And then he confronts her, reminding her that the th that throne, the sun throne, is for Elaine. That's, that's who's getting it. This is not up for negotiation. This is not like a king of the hill type situation. It's for Elaine. And Colavir starts to argue with him. And she says that they need a Kyrian leader. And that Elaine is probably dead anyway. Which is a really stupid thing to say to the dragon reborn. And, you know, I think the the reason that she's in the situation is because she's stupid and she doesn't understand 
what kind of power Rand actually has. Or maybe it's not stupidity. Maybe she's just naive and doesn't believe that he's the dragon reborn. Then uh, when Rand reminds her that Elaine is in fact alive and that he knows this, she says, oh, sorry, but you know, what's done cannot be undone. If I've done anything to offend you, <laughs> and then he he undoes it. He does exactly that. He reaches out, pulls the crown right off of her head, bends and breaks it and shit, and then uses Sidene to put it right back together right in front of her eyes. And I think that's such a, like, perfect response to what the things that she's saying and stuff like that is to, like, literally use Sidene in front of her eyes to repair the crown that he has taken right off of her head. This is why I love the scene so much, because every part of it, what she says, what Rand does, it's all perfect. It's so good. And then Rand says, whatever can be done can be undone, which is kind of funny because so much shit has been done that really and truly cannot be undone. And he knows that. He can't undo being kidnapped and having all of his supporters come to rescue him and then have a battle ensue and then lose all of his maiden friends that he was so upset about at the beginning of the book. He can't undo that. He can't undo having Moraine tackle Lanfear through a door and disappear. He can't undo that either. And there are so many other things that he can't undo. So I think that was a really interesting response to this situation. Anyway, after Rand undoes Colavir's entire reign as queen, <laughs> uh, she goes into like full submission. Oh my lord dragon, I've kept all of your laws, even those that go against our custom. Oh, I was so wrong to take the throne without your permission. And then she turns around and she's like, oh, but I have the right to the throne by blood. She reminds him again that she is the queen. And then Perrin's like, hey, what, what about those two nobles that you murdered in order to, you know, secure your way to the throne? And she denies it. And then she calls over Anora, who is her Aes Sedai counsel. And Honora tells Rand that she has no ill will for him. And then she tells him that if she did have ill will toward him, she would have struck him before he knew she was there. <laughs> she just told the Dragon Reborn, who she knows can channel, that she would have attacked him before he even knew she was there. But she just like decided not to. Does she know who he is? And then Rand tells her that she probably would have died if she tried and that he's not the one that has her shielded. Oh my god, I love that so much. He is not the one that has her shielded. And then everybody starts looking around the room and notice that the Ashaman are there for the first time. Did I tell you guys how much I love the Ashaman? Because I love them so much. I love that their presence is like so terrifying to everyone. And I love that Rand has them around. I think that actually was probably my favorite part of the scene. The crown thing. And then, by the way, this room is filled with other men who can channel that could probably kill you without even really trying. Anyway, then Anora 
basically throws Colivier right under the bus and tells Rand about all of her plans to send the Aiel away and that if Rand gets back, he's not going to dare to change anything that she's done. Apparently, she told all of this to one of her assistants that then disappeared like right after she told her that and uh, that assistant is probably dead because Colivier decided that maybe she shouldn't have said that to anyone after all. And then she just had her killed. Probably, that's speculation, but let's be real, that's probably what happened. Then after all of those revelations, Dobrain like steps forward having heard enough and just straight up sentences her to death, which under Rand's new laws is what should happen to her. And then as a reaction to that, Colvier makes a move towards Fayil, which is weird and I don't understand, but Rand puts up a shield between them really quick to, I guess, to protect Fayil. I actually don't really understand what Fayil is doing there in the first place, but I think I want to talk about that in the next episode because I don't want to spend a whole lot of time with Perrin and Fayil. Then Honora goes into all of the proof that she has against Colavir, which the the throwing under the bus continues like she's really fucking Colavir over she knows exactly what happened to those two nobles that are now dead and then having heard all of her crimes laid out before her Colavir nails her coffin closed with these words she says they promised you would never return so she has usurped the throne She has killed two nobles and probably her assistant. And now, with that sentence, Rand and everyone else knows that she was working with the Aes Sedai before and after they kidnapped Rand. She was part of the whole thing from the beginning. As we know, the punishment under Rand's new laws is that Colavir should be hanged for treason. So now Rand has a woman to hang, which we all know he has a hard time moving his hand against women or putting them in danger in any way, shape, or form. So instead of hanging her like he should under his new laws, and don't forget that many, many books ago, I think it was in uh, The Shadow Rising maybe or something like that, um, one of his Aeol friends and I think he I don't think he was a clan chief I can't really remember who it was but he killed a wetlander and under Rand's laws he was also sentenced to hang or something like that and he actually died and Rand was upset about it because they were friends but he did it anyway and now we have Colavir who is really fucking awful and he doesn't want to hang her which is so weird to me because you hung or killed somebody that you actually liked and were friends with, but this is a woman, so you're not going to kill her, even though she worked with the Aes Sedai that kidnapped you? So he doesn't hang her, of course. He strips her of all of her land and titles, and then he sends her off to a farm. So that's the entire scene, and wow, what a scene. I mean, none of this is surprising. We all know Colavir. We know what kind of person she is. We know about her ambition and her drive to be on the throne. But from start to finish, this confrontation is just incredible. And the most interesting part about it is that after all of that, 
the treason, the murder, she still gets off with just being exiled. And I kind of, I kind of started to talk about this a second ago, but Rand really needs to get over his concern for women. It's such a huge flaw in his personality. And if he doesn't get over it, there are going to be some powerful women that he should have done something about that he doesn't. And then it's going to come back to bite him in the ass. You know that if this was a man that did the exact same thing, he would have died literally standing in front of the sun throne. He never would have saw the light of day again. But apparently, if you are a woman, you you just get exiled to a farm. That's a little ridiculous. However, that being said, as much as that drives me crazy, that is a little piece of rant that he's still clinging on to. And I think the first time he actually sentences a woman to death, or God forbid, kills one of them, that is when we know that Rand isn't the same person anymore. Rand is still Rand right now, but how long will that last? Now I want to switch gears to the Forsaken. So far, they haven't played a huge part in this book, but there are a couple of interesting things going on with Erengard. So we know from the last book that we have these two new Forsaken who are probably just reincarnations of whatever Forsaken have been killed but not destroyed by Balefire. So our options here are Agonar, Erengar, Agonar, maybe, Asmodian, Balthamel, Ishmael, and Lanfear. Those are our options. So I went back to the prologue for book six to reread the scene where we meet the two new Forsaken and Erengar's reaction to being like reincarnated is very interesting because she is pissed, furious. She is questioning why she, why this has been done to her. Why am I in this body? She goes into some sort of like cat rage and attacks the Merdral there. And in the meantime, Ozengar, the other one, is watching this all unfold. And he's thinking she's going to do something drastic. She's losing her mind. And then he thinks even Lanfear is cautious in comparison to Erengar. I was thinking about that and I don't really remember reading about any of the Forsaken flying off the handle more than Lanfear does or being as quick to anger and as jealous. And if we think about which Forsaken could have been reincarnated as Erengar, I feel like we don't really know enough about them to be able to like definitively say, oh yeah, Ishmael was always quick to anger. Like this is his, that sounds like his personality. Absolutely. We don't know enough about any of them to definitively say that, I don't think. Uh, Maybe I missed something, but I still have no real solid idea of who they could be. I think they're probably Agonar and Balthamel because they died first, but in terms of personality, I'm not sure. However, I do know that this is not Landfear. How do I know that? I'll tell you. Because Erengar looks like a woman, but channels Sidene. He's a woman that can channel Sidene. What? What the fuck? I didn't know that that was a thing. I didn't know that that could happen. (laughs) 
But here we are now. We have this Forsaken that's been reincarnated as a woman and can channel the male half of the source. And we know this because Egwene is meeting with Swan and Shirium, and then suddenly she feels like a stab of pain, and then she just knows that a man who could channel Sidene is touching the necklace around Mogadian's neck. And then at the end of the last book, we know that Erengar can channel Sidene because he frees Mogadian with a little ball of Sidene. She looks at it and says, oh, that's a ball of Sidene, but this is a woman. And I went back to read the epilogue of the last book after I read this scene because I remembered reading Mogadian's rescue at the end of the book. And I was reading it again and I was like, holy fuck, how did I miss this the first time? I didn't mention this at all in my discussion of Lord of Chaos. And I think it's because I was like so book drunk and like still reeling from Demise Wells that the implications of this didn't even register to me. So in that case, Erengar can't be Lanfear because it's a man, <laughs> right? So Lanfear is probably still alive and so is Moraine. That's my theory. If, if Lanfear is not reincarnated, then maybe she's still alive. Or it could just take a while for the Forsaken to reincarnate. Like, I can't remember how long it's been since Agnor and Balthamel died. But maybe she's still in the process of being re reincarnated and we haven't seen her yet. But I hope I'm wrong and that Moraine is still alive. Speaking of the Forsaken, some other shit is going down with the Forsaken. Not only is Egwene marching towards Tar Valon, but she also seems to be, in this book, getting a lot of kind of weird headaches. So, and Egwene has an assistant named Halima that just happens to be able to soothe all of these headaches for her. And that name sounded really familiar to me. So, I went back to the epilogue of the last book where Mogadian is rescued in the first place. And who rescues Mogadian? Fucking Halima. Mogadian recognizes her as Halima. This is so bad. This girl has direct access to Egwene and she's causing her pain. And I'm pretty sure that she's using compulsion to make Egwene like and trust her because she says, I don't know why, but I really like and trust Halima. <laughs> and everything about her and her backstory is just not right. Her Aes Sedai, so she's an Aes Sedai assistant or whatever, I don't fucking know, but her previous Aes Sedai, Cabriana, just happened to fall off a horse and break her neck right after she told Halima all kinds of shit about Elida and her plans. Oh, and Cabriana just happened to tell her how to get to Saladar before she died? And then she just happens to show up the day after Loghain escapes? And then that's also when Egwene's headache started? No, that's not coincidence. You know what I think? I think Cabriana was killed by the Forsaken, maybe Erengar, and then they use her death to invent this assistant who passes on their fake information to Egwene to manipulate her movements and then is close enough to Egwene to learn what her plans are and any information she has or can get about Rand and the Aes Sedai and stuff like that. And now that I'm thinking about it, didn't Simarog like kill and torture an Aes Sedai and her warder and like 
I think that was in the last book, right? I bet that's it. I bet that's what happened. I know that Simarag, Demandred, and Masana met, like, around that same time, so maybe they were plotting this very thing. Uh, I, I don't think Erengar was around yet, so maybe not. I don't know. But that brings up another good point. Erengar rescued Mogadian, so now where is Mogadian? Is she hanging out in Teleranriod and uh, manipulating all of the dreams that Egwene eventually has? Like, are those even real dreams? I think they are, but Mogadian has manipulated Egwene's dreams in the past and tried to get her stuck there. That's something that I'll definitely be paying attention to as I read through the books. Where is Mogadian? What is she doing now that she's free? Last point I want to make really quick, uh, something that I'm excited about for the second half of the book. At some point on their march, Egwene discovers that Lan has been in the camp for a while, being quote-unquote healed <laughs> by Morel, and then Morel passes his, I don't know, wardership to Nynaeve and sends him riding off into the sunset to her. I mean, not really, because Egwene likes takes him through Teleran to Ebudar, and then he rides off into the sunset. But you know what I mean. So I'm really excited to read that reunion. However, I hope that Nynaeve never finds out that Lan has been fucking another woman, because she will probably be angry enough to destroy the entire world, and then the last battle won't even happen. <laughs> okay, so I have talked about the first half of The Crown of Swords for about an hour, and I really want to go and read some more. So uh, I plan to finish the book in the next couple of days, and then I'll start working on the next episodes of the Crown of Swords discussion. So that's coming your way soon, hopefully in the next couple weeks. Thank you guys all so much for listening. Don't forget that I am on Twitter. It's at StuckOnArrakis. And if you want to chat, you can email me or send me a tweet. Let me know what you think of the episode. Let me know what you think of the book. Let me know what you think about the points that I brought up. And I hope you guys are all doing well until the next episode. Bye.